It was drafted by Thomas Jefferson between June the 11th and June the 28th, 1776. The Declaration of Independence is indisputably our nation's most cherished symbol of liberty. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The pursuit of happiness. Undoubtedly the most famous phrase in the entire Declaration of Independence and single-handedly responsible for launching America's love affair with this thing called happiness. John Updike said several years ago, America is a vast conspiracy to make you happy. On the world stage, the United States ranks about 16th in terms of being the happiest nation. The first or happiest nation is Denmark. Who would have thought it? Followed by Malta and Switzerland and Iceland. Can you imagine that? People in Iceland are happier than we are. I don't understand that. According to the annual happiness index released each year in this country, North Carolinians rank 39th out of the 50 states in terms of our happiness. You know what the number one state is, the the happiest state in the United States? It's the state that brought us Kool-Aid and Cliff Notes and the wealthiest person in the world, Warren Buffett. And tornadoes. Nebraska, can you believe it? People in Nebraska are the happiest people in our country. Good or bad, right or wrong, uh, we live in a country that is obsessed with this thing called happiness. In the year 2000, uh, less than 10 years ago, a mere 50 books were published in this country on the topic of happiness. Last year, 2008, over 4,000 titles published that specifically deal with happiness. The most popular class at Harvard University these days is about positive psychology, and there are over 100 other universities around the country teaching similar classes. But here's the kicker. After decades and decades of relentlessly pursuing happiness, researchers, both those that are pro-happiness as well as those that are anti-happiness, have concluded a number of things. First of all, they've concluded that Americans are lousy at predicting what makes us happy. We consistently grab superficial quick fixes at the expense of our long-term physical health, at the expense of our long-term mental and emotional and spiritual health, because somehow it's been ingrained in us, maybe it goes back to the Declaration of Independence, but it's been ingrained in us that it is our birthright to be happy people. Another alarming fact that they've discovered is that as a country, we've actually grown sadder and more anxious during the same years that the happiness movement has flourished. Something's not taking, something's not working right here. They also have concluded that our preoccupation with happiness has come at the expense of knowing how to be sad. We have attempted to remove sadness from our emotional repertoire. And so we medicate ourselves rather than learning how to actually work through, deal with, learn from, thrive in the midst of this thing called sadness. Because here's the deal. In our pursuit of happiness... Sooner or later, and it's usually sooner, life always gets in the way of living. Sooner or later, life gets hard, and it's hard to be happy when life is hard. Sooner or later, questions and circumstances and doubts and problems and pain and dashed hopes 
become par for the course, and they rise to the surface in our lives. And all the New York Times self-help bestsellers, and all of our attempts at self-medicating ourselves, and all of our relentless pursuit of this thing called happiness is still unable to make us truly happy at the end of the day. C.S. Lewis wrote, Happiness is an ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure. So for the next few weeks, uh, we're going to actually make our way through the New Testament book of Philippians, whose theme is happiness. It's joy. We're going to make our way through this book that the Apostle Paul wrote, and we're going to talk about and hopefully learn some things about what happiness truly is and what it is not. And how you and I can embrace not just our life, but how we can literally embrace every day just tickled to live and to serve and to learn and to experience and to make a difference this side of eternity. Now make no mistake, we are living in a period of time that is just tough. It's one of uh, the toughest times our country's ever experienced. Issues we face are serious and they're real. 81% of Americans recently surveyed said they believe the country is headed on the wrong track. 81%. And yet we will relentlessly pursue happiness even though our country seems to be going in the opposite direction. Studies consistently show that, that when we allow people the freedom to choose how they live, that's one of the things that brings happiness. And we're in the midst of an era where we're not being allowed to choose how we live. And so these things are at cross odds with one another. But according to the Bible, fortunately, happiness is not some superficial feeling based on our circumstances. Happiness is not something that is based on uh, the health of our country or the lack of health in our country. Happiness is not something that is based on what happens to us or what does not happen to us. Rather, the Bible says that that in no way, shape, fashion, or form resembles what God desires for those of us who are His children. Happiness is not the stuff of fairy tales whereby everyone walks off into the sunset and lives happily ever after. Disney has sold us a bill of goods in that regard. But Mother Goose, Mother Goose nursery rhymes, those are slice-of-life realities. Jack falls down, splits his head open, and his wife trips over him. That's real stuff. Little Miss Buffett's chased away off of her chair by a spider. Jack Spratt suffers from high blood pressure. Humpty Dumpty has a breakdown and can't get healthy again, no matter what. Georgie Porgy makes all the girls cry. Four and twenty blackbirds are baked in a pie. And while some cat fiddles, a dish runs off with his spoon. That's real life. That's the real hard stuff of life. No matter how appealing it might be to vision yourself walking off into the sunset and just living happily ever after in this state of bliss. More often than not, that's not real life. Not without a great deal of sacrifice and not without a great deal of compromise and effort and heartache and mess. True happiness is not some pseudo-optimistic, bursting-with-glee, positive-thinking trick, as many in our country would have us believe. It's not something that results in a pleasure rush, whereby the next rush has to top the last rush. The Bible teaches us that real happiness, true happiness, genuine happiness, is a deep, supernatural experience of contentedness 
that evolves from being in a right relationship with our Creator. And anything and everything else may be good, it may be preferable to a bad day, but it's not what the Bible refers to when the Bible talks about happiness and, and joy and living with satisfaction. According to the Scripture, true happiness has depth to it. It has deliberation to it. It encompasses a life that is meaningful and thoughtful and purposeful. It encompasses a life that, that is intent on something. It confronts annoyances and crises with grace and courage and perspective. And it has a huge community component, always. Because God wired us up as human beings to live and to breathe and to have fun and to suffer in the midst of community. Not as Lone Rangers. Real happiness involves a willingness to learn and to stretch and to grow and to be challenged, all of which often involves huge levels of discomfort and risk and pain. Real happiness requires us to act on life, not merely succumb to life, not merely to live at the mercy of our circumstances. So with that sort of as a backdrop, I want us just to dive in this morning to the book of Philippians. A little four-chapter letter that the Apostle Paul wrote while he was in a prison cell in the city of Rome. And he sent this letter to the church, to the local church in the city of Philippi. It was actually uh, the first city on the European continent to which the gospel of Christ had spread. One author writes this about Paul. He says, Paul is the man who had wanted to go to Rome as a preacher in order to testify of his faith before Nero the emperor. But he was illegally arrested in Jerusalem and misrepresented before the court and incorrectly identified as an Egyptian renegade. And then he was entangled in the, in the red tape of political machinery and finally granted a trip across the Mediterranean only to encounter a storm and be shipwrecked. And when he finally arrived in Rome, he was thrown into prison and virtually forgotten for two years. If you have a Bible, turn to the second uh, letter to Corinthians before we get into Philippians. Corinthians chapter 11, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. It says this, Paul writing about himself, beginning in the 24th verse. He says, Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes, minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a day and a night in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. And besides everything else, he says, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. It's been said that if you were to trace Paul's steps in the first century, it would resemble tracking the path of a wounded deer running from a hunter. Hunter leaving one bloody trail after another. Physically, Paul must have been a wreck. In fact, we're told uh, in extra-biblical accounts that he was nothing good to look at, physically speaking. He was a small man. He couldn't see very well. And he had the scars of years and years of being persecuted because he stood and he proclaimed against all odds the gospel the good news of Jesus Christ. What does it look like to live 
with what the Bible calls a sense of joy, a sense of true happiness, a sense of of going through your days and your years with a contentedness of spirit, with a satisfaction that is deep-seated in your being. We're going to look this morning at the first chapter of Philippians. So go ahead and turn there if you would. And we're going to look at a couple of things that I believe are necessary for us to live that kind of life. For us to really live tickled. For us to live not superficially, but with that deep, uh, deep seat of contentedness that just colors everything about us. To, to get to that point, to live life from that perspective, I think the first thing we have to do is that you and I have to get to the point where we admit that we're not perfect. You say, well, of course we're not perfect. Yeah, but a lot of us try to live that way. We try to live as though we were. We're constantly pursuing that. But you and I have to get to the point to really live with this sense of happiness that the Scripture talks about. We have to get to the point where we admit that we are not perfect. Uh, Philippians chapter 1, just beginning in the first verse. It says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and the deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul writes, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, he writes, That he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. For whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, Paul says that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. For you and I to live this life that we have been called to live, especially in the country in which we reside, we have to realize, we have to just admit that we are not perfect. But here's the kicker. Even though we're not perfect, Christ is still working in us to make us so. I don't know if you picked that up in verse 6. Paul said, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will, he will, carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. God is at work in those who have stepped across the line of faith and who are trusting in Christ Jesus for their salvation, both in the hereafter as well as in the here and now. And so while we have to come to the point in and of ourselves that we admit we cannot live this life that God has called us to live apart from Him, we're not perfect. We cling to the fact that even though we're not perfect, Christ is working in us. He is working in us to change us and to grow us. And the Bible says to perfect us. Paul's prayer for those in Philippi was that they would live wisely. That they would discern what was best and what was pure and what was blameless and what was right. In other words, that they would take their cues from God as opposed to taking their cues from the world, from society, from culture. 
You know, for those who follow Christ, for you and me, there is always a gap between who we are in Christ Jesus and how we live our lives in Christ Jesus. There's always a gap between what the Scripture says is true of us by virtue of us being in Christ versus how you and I will live this day. And the Bible teaches us that that gap will never be completely closed until we are with Christ, until we die and we are with Him. But part of what God is doing through Christ in those of us that follow Him in the here and now is He's attempting to help us close that gap. And to the extent that you and I will take our cues from God, from what He's taught us, from the principles and the truths of Scripture, to that extent, we will be able to close that gap. And one of the things we're going to learn over the next few weeks is to the extent that you and I can live with this this type of happiness, this type of deep-seated joy, this type of contentedness in Christ, to the extent that we can live our lives with that as the foundation, that gap between who we are in Jesus and how we live Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday will close. Because Christ is working in us. We're going to get to chapter 4 here in a few weeks. And in chapter 4, Paul calls this ability to live contented in Christ a secret that we have to learn. In other words, this does not come naturally. You and I are not wired in such a way that we voluntarily, of our own initiative, live in this state of happiness, this state of contented satisfaction. We don't have it in and of ourselves to do that. That's why people who are not in Christ, people who've never stepped across the line of faith, people who do not have the Holy Spirit of God indwelling, that's why they will never live the kind of life that they were created to live. Because you can't do that apart from Christ. It's not natural. But when Christ takes up residence in us through His Spirit, and when you and I begin to apply the principles and the truths that God has given us as to how best to live this life that He has called us to live, we can live with contentedness and satisfaction, with this, in this state of, of joy and happiness, just tickled to live this day when we live it in Christ Jesus. Throughout these four chapters, Paul's going to mention just a number of things that, that you and I allow to rob us of this kind of joy. He's going to talk about uh, circumstances. We're going to talk about that today. A preoccupation with ourselves. A preoccupation that, that only looks at ourselves rather than looks at others is something that will steal your joy faster than anything. Legalism, a pursuit of pleasure, worry, discontentment. All of those things, Paul says in this letter to the church in Philippi, are joy robbers which keep us from living the life that God has called us to live. So much of our energy, so much of my energies, so much of your energies go into pursuing happiness apart from Christ. I mean, we don't think about it that way, but it is. It's apart from Jesus. So much of what we spend our time on, so much of what we read, so much of what we watch, so much of what we listen to, so much of of who we hang with, so much of what we do in the course of any given day is meant to pursue Happiness and pleasure and fun at the expense of Christ. Pascal wrote, All men seek happiness. There are no exceptions. Yet all men complain. 
A test which has gone on so long without pause or change really ought to convince us that we are incapable of attaining the good by our own efforts. And then he says this, this infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite object. To the extent that you and I seek true happiness, this, this contentedness of spirit in anything apart from Christ, to that extent we will be disappointed. Because the Scripture says that is not true happiness. That is not true joy. That is not something that's going to make you get out of bed in the day and approach life with vigor and excitement, tickled to live. We're not perfect, but Christ is still working in us. That's the first thing we need to understand this morning. The second thing is this. In order to really live a tickled life, in order to really live a life of joy and contentedness and satisfaction, we need to accept that life is hard. We need to just accept that. So much of, of, of the Western world's obsession with happiness is to try and get to the point where we never have bad days, where we never have bad things happen to us, where we never have problems or never have pain or never have adversity or never suffer. And that's this great pursuit. That's the pursuit of America, if you will. But that is so contrary to what Scripture teaches. Look at verse 12 of Philippians chapter 1. Paul says, Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Remember, Paul is in a, in a Roman prison, a dungeon, if you will. He's chained to a Roman soldier. And this is not just happening for a month or two. He's been in here for two years. At this particular point, he has no hope of ever leaving here. He says, I want you to know that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously, more fearlessly. It's true, Paul said, that some preach Christ out of envy, some preach Christ out of rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter, Paul says? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true motives, Christ is preached. And because of this, I will rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, that what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. For I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage, so that now as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. You see, friends, to really live tickled, to really live with a sense of contentment and satisfaction, happiness, joy, however you want to frame it, to really live that way is to accept <clears throat> that life is hard. But Christ is working through your circumstances. You're not perfect, but Christ is working in you. Life is hard, but Jesus is working through the circumstances that happened to you and I in any given day. I don't care how bad a day you had this past week. How many of you had a bad day this past week? Yeah, and the others are just like liars, okay? Yeah, everyone had bad days this week, okay? I don't care how bad a day you had this last week. Your bad day doesn't hold a candle 
to the day that the Apostle Paul was having when he wrote this. Your day doesn't hold a candle. My bad day, the bad things that happened to me, the fact that I couldn't find a short line at Walmart, the fact that someone didn't use their turn signal when they turned into the post office, the fact that I had a bad day does not hold a candle to what Paul was experiencing in this Roman prison. But understand, the difference is that the Apostle Paul knew that what was happening to him, that God was using that for his good. That God was using that for the advancement of the gospel. In fact, in verse 12 there, he says, to advance the gospel. It's actually a military term. In fact, you'll find, and probably won't mention this again, but all throughout the book of Philippians, Paul uses military terminology. Because a lot of the, a lot of the Christ followers in Philippi were retired military. And then after they had gotten out of the military at some point, they had stepped across a line of faith. They had become part of the church there. And so Paul uses a lot of military terminology in order to get the truths that he's teaching across to this church. And one of those uh, terms is to advance the gospel. To advance was a military term that was used of engineers who would actually go before an advancing army in order to clear away any obstacle or any obstruction from their path. Trees, rocks, whatever. And so Paul, Paul here says he viewed his imprisonment. He views the fact that he had been beaten because of Christ. He viewed all of that as the removal of barriers so that the gospel might spread throughout Rome. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a different mindset than I live most days with. Most days I don't wake up wondering how the gospel is going to spread in Elizabeth City. Most days, I don't think half of my day, how in the world we're going to get the gospel out. And that's to my shame. (laughs) You know what the truth is? You don't think that way either. Rather, we allow the things that happen to us, we allow the bad days to so color our moods and our emotions and what we do and what we say and how we do it and how we say it. You know, it seems that one of our unspoken goals in life is just not to have a bad day. But the Bible says not only is that completely unrealistic. Remember what Jesus said? He said, in this world, you will experience trouble. In this world, you will experience trouble. He didn't say you might. He didn't say you could live in such a way that you can dodge all the trouble. He said, in this world, if you're a follower of His, He said, you will experience trouble. Remember the very next words He said? He said, But take heart, because I've overcome the world. For you and I to live the kind of life that God created and fashioned and made us to live, we've got to get to the point to where we understand we're not perfect, but Christ is still working in us. And we've got to get to the point where we just accept that life is hard. But God is working through the circumstances that you and I encounter every day of every week. Life is hard, but Christ is working in us and in our circumstances. In fact, one of the ways He grows us most is by using the hard stuff. I don't know if you're familiar with Johnny Erickson Tata. Um, When she was just a teenage girl, I think about 16 years old, uh, she had a diving accident. She dove into a lake. And um, as a result, um, she uh, became uh, paralyzed from the neck down. And so from the age of 16 until today, she has lived her life Uh, in a wheelchair, completely immobile from the neck down. I was reading uh, her story the other day, and she writes this. 
She goes, I've always wondered why I broke my neck. Not why in the theological sense of why does God allow bad things to happen. Not why in the sense of fate, as I look at others and wonder why not her. Rather, I've wondered why in the sense of destiny, as if it was just bound to happen. She said, following her accident and following just months and months in the hospital and having to acclimate to being uh, paralyzed from the neck down, she says, I became the stoic, plowing and plodding two steps forward and three steps back with my head against the wind of God's will and however it was connected with my wheelchair. My family recognized it in me <clears throat> whenever I stubbornly refused to feed myself or whenever I became sullen or moody after I passed a full-length mirror, they recognized this in me. I hadn't dared to believe my wheelchair could be a passport to joy. Instead, I'd reined in my hopes, bridled my heart, and put a tie-dye, tie-down on my dreams. I would not let go. I would not be free, she writes. I wouldn't release myself to believe that the joy of the Lord was big enough to enrapture and enthrall me despite a lifeless, limp body. Instead, I chose to rein myself, resign myself to my condition, and my heart always seemed to get a little harder. She said, one day a friend came to her and said, you will never accept your wheelchair. You'll never adjust or cope or even submit to it. But you can embrace God. Think of a greater affliction, His affliction. And as you do, you can't help but embrace Him. And as you embrace Him, you can't help but love His will. And then she writes this. She says, time is slippery stuff. The past always looks different than it did back when. I'd been looking for a road that would lead me out of the pain, and I wasn't finding it. But in time, I came to see the whole interstate highway system with all of its exits and all of its on-ramps. And I concluded... This is the God I love, the peacemaker, the passport to adventure, the answer to all our deepest longings, the man of sorrows, the Lord of joy. Permitting what he hates to accomplish something he loves. Permitting what he hates to accomplish something he loves. And then she says this, there are more important things in life than walking. There are more important things in life than walking. I don't know what you're pursuing right now. I don't know what's on your radar. I don't know what you have, have tuned uh, yourself to that you just have to get, that you just have to have. I don't know what change in your life that if it doesn't happen, it's just going to leave you in a bad state. I don't know what is going through your mind right now. But there are more important things in life than walking. There are more important things in life than, and you fill in your blank. You fill in that thing that says, I will not be happy until. I will not be happy unless. I will not be content unless. I will not be satisfied until. You fill in the blank. And then along with the Apostle Paul, we've got to get to the point where we understand and believe and live there are more important things in life than There's a third thing I think that we have to understand. If we're going to live this life that God has called us to live, we're not perfect, but Christ is working in us. Life is hard, but Christ is working through our circumstances. The third thing is we have to adjust our focus to include eternity. You and I have to adjust our focus to include eternity. We have to admit we're not perfect. We have to accept that life is hard. And we have to adjust our focus to include eternity. Because here's the deal. You and I were created 
for more than this life. You and I were created. God fashioned us. He put us together. As David says in Psalm 139, He knit us together in our mother's womb for more than 40 or 60 or 80 years on this planet. That's part of it, but it's not all of it. And a lot of times we live our life as though this life were it. This life is all that matters. This life is all that counts. My being happy, my having fun, my being amused, my being able to escape is all that matters. Sometimes we go through days and weeks and years forgetting that we were created for more than this life. C.S. Lewis wrote, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. We live in a country that says if we just pursue it hard enough, if we just long for it deep enough, if we just grab for it, that eventually we will, we will, we will be happy. If we just pursue pleasure, if we just go all out for fun, if we just attempt to amuse ourselves to death, eventually we'll get to this point where life is good. And that's the exact opposite of what the Bible teaches. And we pursue those things to our detriment because we were not just created to live on this planet. We were created for eternity of which this small slice of time is part of but not all of. Look at verse 20 of chapter 1. Again, Paul writes this. He says, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always, Jesus will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, then this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose, Paul says? I don't know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. He says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on Him, but also to suffer for Him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Friends, when we lose our eternal perspective, we lose our joy. When we assume that this world is it, that this life is it, we lose our joy. When we lose sight of the fact that we were created for more than this world, we will put far more significance on things in this world than God ever intended for us to. 
It's amazing to me that Paul wrote to the Philippians here, and in the midst of this first chapter, I don't know if you picked up on this, in the midst of this first chapter, he never once mentioned fun, he never once mentioned movies, he never once mentioned going shopping to the mall, he never once mentioned the newest model of chariot, he never once mentioned having more money in the bank, he never once mentioned a cool vacation, he never once mentioned any of that stuff. Not that it's bad, but he doesn't mention it. What does he mention? He says, I am here to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because Paul's perspective did not simply encompass 60 or 80 years. His perspective encompassed eternity, of which the 60 or 80 years that he would live were but a small slice. You see, when we lose sight of the fact that we were created for more than this world, then we'll start thinking that our money can give us security. When we lose sight of the perspective that we were created for more than this world, we'll start living at the mercy of our circumstances. We'll we'll develop tunnel vision and we'll become incredibly myopic and short-sighted. We'll get our priorities all messed up when we fail to remember that we were created for eternity, not just for a slice of time on this planet. How would you complete Paul's sentence? For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. For to me, to live is, you fill in the blank. For to me, to live is money. And to die is to leave it all behind. For to me, to live is recognition. And to die is to be forgotten. For to me, to live is power or influence. And to die is to lose it all. Paul says, for to me, to live is Christ. To live is Christ. And to die is gain. Where are you finding your joys these days? Your joy. Where are you finding your contentedness? Are you trying to have one day top the next, top the next, top the next, top the next? In terms of fun? In terms of amusement? In terms of escape? Are you trying your best to go through a 24-hour period and it be a good day and not a bad day? Is that your goal? Is that your focus? Paul would say to us, step back and get a better perspective. Because your and my life does not consist of just what happens to us today. We've got to adjust our focus to include eternity, not just the here and now. We place so much emphasis on the here and now. And again, that's not to say that any of that is bad. It's just that we weren't created to place that much emphasis on it. We weren't created to pursue it with that much energy and effort at the expense of preparing ourselves for eternity. Western, Western civilization is the first civilization on the planet that has placed more emphasis on the here and now than on the hereafter. In America, we love our country. We love our freedom. But a lot of what we spend our energy on will leave us lacking. Someone wrote, the more directly one aims to maximize pleasure and avoid pain, 
the more likely one is to produce a life bereft of depth and meaning and community. Because happiness by its nature cannot be obtained by direct pursuit. You have to sneak up on it. Or rather, you have to let it sneak up on you while you're pursuing something more important. How do you live tickled? How do you live excited to be alive this day? How do you live in such a way that you gain the maximum life of this 24-hour period? You admit you're not perfect. But you remember that Christ is still working in you. You accept that life is hard, but you remember that Christ is working through your circumstances, good and bad. And you adjust your focus to include, include eternity because the deal is you and I were created for far more than 60 or 80 years on this planet. If you would please just bow your head. I'm going to pray for us. God, um, it is so difficult for us, especially living in this country with all of our wealth and all of our affluence, with all of the resources, with all of the bombardment we experience from Hollywood and from Madison Avenue and from advertisers, from the TV, telling us that if we'll just get this new thing, if we'll just get this better thing, if we'll just pursue this bigger thing, that it'll truly make us happy. We live in a culture that is so superficial. And so we just ask You, Father, through Your Spirit and through Your Word over the next five weeks, that You would help us adjust our perspective. That You would help us be a little less short-sighted as we live this life that you've called us to live and that you would teach us what it really looks like to embrace Christ in such a way that he becomes our source of contentment he becomes our source of satisfaction he becomes our source of joy and happiness and we just commit that to you and we look forward to how you're going to work in our lives over this next month to work those truths and those principles out. We thank you and we praise you. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus, who's made it possible. Amen. Have a great afternoon. See you next week.